When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On today's episode of Defense with DC on the Coaching Coordinator Podcast, we focus on rivalries, and it is Rivalry Week, one of the big ones that's been around for a long, long time. Got its heat turned up, certainly, in the 60s, 70s, by guys like Woody Hayes and Bo Schembechler is the Ohio State-Michigan game. I'm from Ohio, so is Dan Carroll, and so there's certainly... The things you grow up with and learn that just become part of it, part of the understanding of this game. And Woody's was full of, of great quotes on this matchup. He never, first of all, said the word Michigan. Uh, that certainly has carried on if you go around the Ohio State campus today. Anywhere there's an M on any sign has a piece of red tape over it. And he would call them the team up north. And two notable quotes from Woody. One was when asked... Uh, after the 1968 game, why he went for two, he said, because I couldn't go for three. <laughs> the other one being when he was in Michigan and uh, needed to get gas, made it a point that he wasn't going to stop and give the state of Michigan a nickel of his money that he'd rather push that car to the state line. So uh, certainly a lot of this stuff grew the legend. It was a, a rivalry that was based in very specific regional recruiting a lot of the guys from the teams used to be from their respective state uh, I could think back to you know guys like Desmond Howard and you know getting getting probably catching a lot of, of flack for being a trader and going to Michigan but uh, you know it's still that rivalry we have an incredible game I was fortunate to be able to be at what they called the game of the century in 2006 when Ohio State was one Michigan was two we come into this week with a similar situation, both of them surviving this past week, but they come in at number two and number three. So I think a lot to, to chew on here, just starting with the idea of a rivalry. So joining me as he does every week on this series is Dan Carroll, USFL, Michigan Panthers defensive coordinator. Dan, excited to talk about the matchup this week. Yeah, it is exciting, man. It's, um, you know, Thanksgiving week football is always a blessing. If you're a high school team and you're still out there playing, man, you're probably having a heck of a year. If you're a, a lower, smaller division college, D2, D3, that means you're deep in a playoff run. And then obviously division one, it's rivalry week. So, and you know, the NFL plays on Thanksgiving. So this is always a great week of football and it's something that, you know, it's going to be enjoyed this week, but I will tell you this, Woody would be very happy with the USFL because we actually can go for three. Uh, you can put the ball, you can spot the ball at the 10 after a touchdown and you can elect to elect the spot at the 10 and go for three. So I think, uh, you know, Woody, Woody might've inspired uh, the powers that be in the USFL to uh, create that rule. Well, you, you could bet if he was facing, facing Michigan in the game, he'd be looking at that one every time. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, um, and obviously, like you said, growing up in Ohio and, 
you know, without getting too deep into it, I know you know, but um, my uh, mother's family, Italian immigrants, didn't know whether the football was pumped or stuffed, and, and her cousin actually got the got chance to get recruited and first generation American get recruited and, and play at um play at Ohio State and become a captain in 1968. So obviously that was something that you know we didn't know anything about football, but it was just ingrained in us that Ohio State was everything. And it was, uh, you know, the pinnacle of, of coming here. So got to grow up around that stuff and, you know, just really love this rivalry. But to, to get to kind of what a rivalry is, I mean, it's it's so interesting just how this stuff evolves. And, you know, you, you think about Woody and Bo having worked together previous to, to this thing becoming what it was. And, and, you know, obviously it even has a nickname, right? It's the 10-year war when you talk about from – you know, I think what they call 69 to 78, I think it's like the last 10 years when he was the head coach. And, you know, it, it's these things develop over time. And, and But the biggest thing you think is like there was continuity in the coaching staff. So there was continuity in the head coach. There was continuity in where they were recruiting and who they were expecting to recruit. And, you know, they're trying to, you know, why was Woody driving in Michigan, right? He was probably up there trying to get a player that wanted to, you know, who was supposed to go to Michigan, right? So it's just, you think about those things and, and it's uh I think that the rivalry has maybe taken on a little bit of a new uh uh life in the sense that, you know, it's not as regional anymore. It's not like the the players that go to Ohio State aren't all from Ohio and there's not just, you know, the two or three from Michigan that they were able to go get or vice versa. So, you know, it, it is a little bit of a different feel maybe than when the team was made up of kids from Cleveland, Cincinnati and Columbus mainly. I, I would agree with that, but I think what each program has done and this has really been regardless of who the head coach was was they did I think do an incredible job of embracing that tradition and making sure that their players wherever they come from understand how important that game is to both of those football communities and uh, certainly as we said the 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 stuff of legends grew out of the 10-year war and Bo and, and Woody and and really, though, you look at this, I mean, this game not only is full of incredible players, but incredible coaches as well. And respect for uh, both sides in, in that, uh, even being <laughs> as a, a guy from Ohio, uh, I mentioned to you before, you know, my, my love for reading some of these, these books that were written a long time ago, and I have both of of Woody's books, Hotline to Victory, one that I sent you a copy of, which is just, um, I mean, that one was self-published. Uh, it, it looks like it was put together at, you know, a Kinko's or an Office Max, has the, the comb binding on it, but full of incredible stuff. Some stuff dated when you look at it, but a lot of it, when you get to the core of the coaching and the detail in there, I mean, it really is incredible. And if Bo's book is an, another one that I really enjoyed and have, have read and, and incredible thoughts in his. And Woody's other book is uh, You Win With People. I was able to finally track down a copy of that one and uh, some great stuff in that as well. But the uh, I think the best part of, again, what anybody has done that stepped into those seats at either school is to embrace it and carry on what it is. And I think that's an important part of our game. Uh, you see... A lot of those things disappear over time, change over time. I, I know here in Northeast Ohio, what were once traditional rivalries just with 
you know, the way populations have shifted from even city to city here that some of those have lost their meaning. So I think anytime when we can look to those and we're using Ohio State, Michigan as one today, but really across the game at any level, I really think that's what makes this game fun for everybody involved, whether that that be a fan, a player or a coach. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, I, I was fortunate enough in 2013 to be a part of, you know, a small part, but a part of the Ohio State football staff. And Coach Meyer did an incredible job of, of making everybody understand how important this game was to, to fans, to people around Columbus, to people around the state. And, you know, we, we he brought in speakers and, and people that have played in the game, uh, mostly former players. I believe C. Grant came, if you remember him. He was a linebacker on the national championship team. And uh, I believe he played at uh, New Philly High School, maybe. And, um, he came and he was great at, you know, just passionately talking about, you know, what it meant to play in this game and, and, and what it meant to you know, be able to, you know, compete and get the gold pants and, and whatnot. So, you know, that was awesome. I mean, I can tell you in that there's a, I can't, I don't know who sings the song. I don't know who the artist is, but um, there's a song, I think LL Cool J. It's like, it's time for war. I don't know if you've ever heard it. And that was just repeating throughout the building and it was so loud at one point like we were in staff meetings just screaming at each other because he had this thing going so loud just 24 hour loop um you know just to make everybody realize you know like this is this is the culmination you know in the previous year they didn't have any postseason eligibility so it wasn't really in 2012 coach Myers first year it was the culmination of everything for that season I mean there wasn't going to be a bowl game there wasn't going to be anything else and they were undefeated and you know and then the next year when I was there we were you know, playing for potentially a chance in the national championship. And it was, you know, just an unbelievable job of creating the environment to, to teach how important that this game was. And, you know, certainly uh, as you talk about what you talk about, just the books and the things that the history of it, you know, I do think that it is really important to try to keep the history of the game and keep the history of, things that have gone on and, you know, whether it's rivalries or whether it's just certain traditions within the program, there's a lot of traditions within the Ohio state program that people probably don't even realize. I'm sure it's like that at a lot of other major uh, universities and really enhances the experience for the players and the fans and the coaches. When I, I look at it, you know, the times at the high school level when I would take over a new job, the thing I wanted to understand as as early as possible and a lot of it a lot of it most places would come from just just talking to people in the program but the tradition of the program what things are really important whether that's a a certain opponent um you know maybe little traditions they have and see how we can embrace those sometimes it's embrace them in a new way sometimes it's actually to 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 bring them back There, there may have been people before you who forgot about those but I think the historical aspect of our game is important to embrace and, and continue on. I mean, the game is, is changing, evolving in so many different ways. I, I think, you know, for the better in a lot of ways, uh, it's definitely continues to be a fun game to watch. But embracing those things and understanding those things, and even if you're taking over a program that's been down on its luck, which obviously that happens a lot of times. I mean, you're getting a job because they need somebody new to come in and fix things, you know, that program still has tradition. It may not have been a winning tradition, but what are the things in there that you can embrace? Because these programs are made up 
of people and people care about it. I just got an email yesterday morning from my high school and they're back in the playoffs uh, and, and they're in the final four. They beat our rival, uh, Padua. I went to Holy Name High School. They beat them early in the season. They beat them to get to the final four. And now they're practicing on Thanksgiving, which hasn't happened in a, in a long time. We had won one state championship, I think it was in 19, uh, the 1980s, maybe late 70s, a long time ago. And so, you know, that email coming to, you know, me and my friends right away, we, you could tell when it hit everybody's inbox because the text started between each other yeah. and, and the memories started and thinking about, you know, our coaches, our games. And uh, that's, I think, what's so important to this. So, you know, every program does have tradition and it's, it's how do you embrace those things? And I really think even if you're coming into a place that hasn't had a lot of success lately or maybe even a lot of success traditionally, the tradition is really those people. So how can you build it around that and bring those people in? Because I think if you want your, your program to survive really at any level, and I think this goes all the way up to, to the NFL, you have to embrace and bring those people back into your program, especially if, if for whatever reason they've drifted away. Yeah, I, mean, I think people in general, the reason that we have, have fans is because people want to feel united against something or with each other and against something else and i think that anytime you can build up the rivalry you know anytime you can build up how important a game is and or how important you know a tradition is and you know what it means to people in the building and outside the building and just that sense of community and camaraderie that's built around you know maybe a specific game or, or you know just whatever it is within the program that you can build it around i think is the first start to you know when you take over a team that's not successful i mean the first thing you realize is that once it starts to not be a very successful team then all the the agendas come out for the different players or the different coaches and it just it breaks apart further right because there's nothing uniting it there's nothing holding it together and i think you know rivalry games and traditions are one thing and it's not necessarily the biggest thing but it is a part of how you hold a team together how you hold a group together an organization it's just having those things that you that you all rally around and, and you know, build that camaraderie around because, you know, bad teams and, and bad programs generally just, it's just, uh, just like splinters of people's own agendas, you know, that, that aren't necessarily the agendas of, of winning and of the things you need to, to build success. Well, when you look at this particular matchup, this year's edition of the Ohio state Michigan game, you have two very strong defenses, Michigan, you know, was was playing some great defense in their Final Four run in, in 2021, and they changed coordinators. But certainly they've done a great job sitting at number one right now in total defense, allowing just 241.3 yards per game. And you look at Ohio State and their Achilles heel in 2021 was their defense and now they're at number nine. They're a top 10 defense, allowing 283.4 per game uh, in total yards. So uh, certainly, um, you know, some, somebody stepping into what had been done previously and being able to, to move the ball forward with Michigan and Jim Knowles coming in and doing a great job with Ohio State. When you look at those two defenses, what are some things that stand out to you? Well, you know, one thing, this is why I love the Big Ten, is 16.9 uh, 
points a game for Ohio State. It's good enough for 10th in the country, but it's only good enough for fifth in the Big Ten. So <laughs> that's a, a great, great conference to be a defensive coordinator at because they're going to keep the points down and run the football and keep the points down. But, you know, watching Michigan against Illinois, you know, I, I, it's impressive, I guess, just how physical they play up front. I mean, they play a lot of post defense, and, and you know, Illinois is doing the things you want to do against post defense. They're giving you some OT counters and some OY counters and just, you know, trying to get some gap schemes that are, you know, perimeter-ish gap schemes that, you know, a lot of times get spilled out. And, you know, thinking that, you know, you might have the, the number advantage when they got a guy pedaling through the post. And just sometimes it, Michigan ends up, you know, short in the run game, but they play so physical and play with their hands and beat blocks. And it's like, you know, you don't even notice the fact that, you know, there's two blockers and two defenders. And so, you know, it, it go, the ball gets knocked down for plus one. So, I think it'll be that balance of if they if they play a lot of post defense, if that's what they want to do against Ohio State, are they going to hold up against Ohio State receivers in their passing game? Obviously, that'll you know help them in the middle of the field, but just on the perimeter, can can their corners hold up against Ohio State's wideouts? Because I mean, I don't I don't know if there's a better group of players in the country in a position room than Ohio State receivers. So, you know that that's an interesting game within the game. And can we stop the run? in one high without, without having overhangs, without having a QB player, like, can we stop the run, you know, with a guy deep in the post and, and versa, you know, the OT. So I think those are the things that Michigan, when you think about how they play, and are they going to, they're going to be able to play as physical as they did against Illinois and be blocked and, and, and play the play tough in the run game like they did versus Illinois. And I think Ohio state, man, you watch them. There's a lot of man. There's a lot of blitz. There's a lot of just big play, big splash defense. And I think when you have an explosive offense, those are the type of things that you know can really just. That's how games get out of hand, in my opinion. Is you get a couple splash plays on defense early in the game, and the offense is clicking like Ohio State's offense tends to do, scoring almost 50 points a game. That's when you know you look up and games are 28 to three in the first quarter, and you're like, what the heck happened, right? Because you know they got two takeaways or. You know, they got a big sack that pinned them back, and then they, you know, punted the ball to the 50-yard line, and now it's 14 nothing in a flash. So, you know, I think they keep taking the chances. They take, keep pressure in the way they pressure. They play a lot of man pressures, you know, even in situations where not a lot of people in college football are man pressure first and second down. And, you know, they get after it. They get after the quarterback, and they, you know, they hit the ball in the run game. You know, but they do give up a few more plays probably than, than a defense like Michigan, but – you know, I think they're trying to play team football in that sense and say, look, we can score a lot of points if we can get some big plays on defense. Like these games, these games are really wrapped up pretty quick. So first of all, my apologies as I was going through and talking about the Ohio State and Michigan defenses. I did mention Jim Knoll. I wasn't pulling a Woody here. Uh, I just was going over too quickly. And Jesse Minner is, is the defensive coordinator for Michigan. And again, has done a great job of, of stepping in and uh, really, as I said, bringing these guys to the top in 2022. Now, uh, you mentioned the offenses of each one. You have two high-powered offenses. You look at scoring Ohio State number two, 42.7 points per game. Michigan number nine, 39.4. They both do it in different ways. But you pointed out the explosiveness of that Ohio State receiver group. And it's you know, you saw it last year in the bowl, you know, going into that game, there's a couple guys out, you're thinking, okay, that's going to be 
it's going to be problematic for Ohio State and their their guys come in and I mean they're they're like setting school records you know in their first starts and so that's what you see Brian Hartline uh, has done an incredible job he was on uh, before the season started uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see him get a head coaching job that was something that just came through and, and listening to him speak the energy uh, and how dynamic he is and just the fact that he's a teacher and been able to apply a lot of the things that he just for a player work for him he's applied those to his receiver group uh, every part of it right coaching the mental side of the game as well as the physical and I'll link that one in the show notes as, as well as Keenan Bailey who's his assistant over there now has moved to a a senior uh, assistant to the head coach position. Um, but those guys do an incredible job. So I'll put those in the show notes. But in looking at something that like that, you're facing a team similar to Ohio State who has multiple receivers who can hurt you. So it's not like, oh, we're going to go lock this guy down and uh, you know we'll take away their passing game. I mean, there are all kinds of complementary parts. If you put too much... Uh, of your defense in one area on one guy somebody else is going to hurt you so you know in approach to facing those kinds of situations what do you feel is the best approach in facing a team that just has multiple threats out on the edges yeah I mean I think that a lot of those matchups were decided in recruiting the past two and a half three years so I think that's where you got to start but but obviously I don't think Michigan can recruit but I don't think the transfer portal is the uh, sudden enough for Michigan to recruit anybody between now and then. So I think that you look at matchups, you look at uh, formations and splits and distribution, and you try to build either combo coverages or at least a coverage with a tag that it could go to this if we get this picture. So, you know, where are they? What are, what are the formations and splits and distributions where they're hitting shots? Who are they hitting shots? What coverages are they hitting shots against? We got to, really break down, you know, when, you know, when they, what, where's the ball go versus coverage? Where's the ball go versus coverage? So sometimes it's more than just two high and one high. I mean, I want to see really versus cover two and versus quarters, versus cover three and versus man. Like, where is the ball going? You know, they line up in three by one, you know, they line up in a basic distribution three by one with the back offset week. It's pretty much a, typically it's like an 80% pass for, for college football teams. Where's the ball going when they line up like that versus, versus all these various coverages? And then, like, we've got to start to formulate a, either an auto call that kind of encompasses everything, if that's something that you normally do. Or if you don't, you know, we're going to play cover three, but we want to be in some other call versus this formation. Or we want to be, you know, we want to go to a drop eight versus this formation because we think we're going to get, you know, quick game or mesh or something like that. So I think that you got to look up the matchups. And you got to try to avoid matchups that you don't think are advantageous for you. And sometimes it's not, this is a good matchup for us. It's just, this is the least bad matchup for us. I've been in that situation. I'm not saying that's the case here, but I've been there. And it's just like, let's avoid the really, really bad matchups. And let's by formation, by split, by distribution, let's look at where we can either take some pressure off the corner. or Maybe we, we cloud certain sets or, you know, we go from three to, to four versus this, or, you know, maybe we play cover two and, and cover three, whatever it is. And, but we have to try to limit the what we're going to get by set, by formation, and, and get ourselves in the right call. I don't think that you can just sit there and just call one thing or you call the play and just try to guess right every time. I think we've got to be able to handle some of that stuff on the field. What I've seen from both teams offensively is they do like to get 
their guys into a rhythm and you'll see a lot of I think quick passing some play action obviously both of them have really good run offenses too Michigan is number four 243 eight Ohio State number 20 at 2035 um, you know 40 yard difference per game but obviously two very good teams on the ground and they want to get their quarterbacks in rhythm I think that's true today I think you see it more and more I mean you want to be able to handle uh, a great pass rush like Ohio State has uh, get get the ball out quick get it to the sideline get those guys running and tiring them out um, f- from a defensive perspective knowing that that's a strategy not just with these two teams but a lot of teams today best ways to, to handle that and to not necessarily let them dictate especially early on that hey we're you know we're going to get our guy into rhythm we're going to make it quick uh, quick for him get the ball out etc yeah, I mean, I think starting fast, and I think looking again. I think we've talked about on here that uh, everybody has got some type of a play script and the things you're going to see early, and, and you really you know study those first ten to fifteen plays and see what what the what's consistent throughout the games. You know, watch the first two drives of every game back to back to back and kind of see what's consistent. So you're you're ready for that. You're prepared for that. I think starting fast is really important. You know, I can think back to just games I've been in, I've been on both sides of it, right? I mean, the momentum starts in the first quarter, and if you can keep it going as a coach, like, you're either about to blow somebody out or you're about to get blown out. It's the other side's the one doing it. So it's just – I think that, that early on, not letting them get in a rhythm, just kind of seeing what they're trying to do early on. I know that um, when I was – when I was at Ohio State and Braxton Miller was our quarterback, uh, we used to – used to get a lot of perimeter plays early, like jet sweeps and things like that, little push pass. Like, you know, he felt, even though, and it's crazy, I think, you know, in a little bit he felt like, you know, that, that was a completion for him, right, a little push pass jet sweep and got him some yards and we got the defense moving, just like you're saying. And, you know, then he, he would get into a rhythm and start to feel a little comfortable. So I think that, you know, you, you just have to look at kind of the plays and what's consistently showing up early in the game and be prepared for it, prepare the players for it, and, you know, hopefully that you're – whatever you're calling in the beginning of the game is, is ready for that. And I think from just wearing the D lineman out, like when you have college numbers, and I don't know how many guys that Michigan is typically playing on the D line. Uh, When I was at the university of Houston in 2016 and we played Oklahoma and every time they subbed, we subbed the D lineman every time. And he had the slowest jog in America getting out there. Right. And that just, kind of gave our guys a break because they had they had the tendency to go tempo and, and, and wear people out so you know we just we're going to sub like if you're going to sub ref's going to hold the ball we're going to make him hold the ball and then we're going to jog out there slow so I mean certainly I know that's a something that offensive guys hate but at the end of the day like your tempo is, is your tool and and subbing is, is our tool to, to counter it so looking at the, the run game which is always a big part of the of this rivalry is uh, to again to teams running the ball uh the the cast of characters has changed a little bit here for ohio state as they hit some injuries but now they got a true freshman in there uh playing really well um but looking at again i think trying to dictate from the defensive side of the ball doing some things maybe early on to force them to throw the football though i'm, I'm not sure you know with ohio state it, it gets to be pick your poison um Probably, you know, similar with Michigan, too. Uh, their, their receivers maybe aren't as prolific as Ohio State's, but uh, the importance of being able to do some things to, to make it tough on the ground for these guys and some of the ways you think 
early on in a game as we're talking about an offense trying to get in a, in a rhythm, you know, getting your defense to be able to stop the run early on in the game? You know, if you build run blitzes that are formation-based or you build, you know, check blitzes that are, you know, you think you know where the runs are going, I think the big thing early on is to make sure that that's what's actually happening. Like if you're going to blitz the back or you're going to blitz the tight end or, you know, you're going to blitz the back if it's split backs or something like that, I think that it's really important to just make sure those are the things that are happening early on. And if the, if the backfield sets are changing, like you got to be quick to adjust those things. And I know that I've been in that situation where, you know, you we're going to blitz the back and then the first play of the game, they show up in pistol and it's like, well, we'll see how it goes. Like, I don't, I don't want to see how it goes. I want to make an adjustment right now. And then pistol, this is what we're going to do. Like, well, they don't not really a pistol team. I don't know why they did that. Well, they did it probably because they know we blitz the back right, or something of that nature. So I think that being quick to adjust early when you have those calls and those, those blitzes built in is, is important. And then just, you know, there's just certain fundamental things too that you watch and that guys get out there and you know early on especially in these rivalry games there's a lot of nerves there's a lot of anxiety there's a lot of you know pre-game rah-rah we're going to kill them and you know this game's in Columbus so I don't think they got to worry about the tunnel but I think you know you're just getting guys settled down and playing with the fundamentals and the techniques that you expect of them because you know I watch every week you watch um Anybody you watch, pretty much, I'll see a tight end, three by one, tight end off, back set to him, four by one, right? Like a flow distribution with the tight end off the ball. And you and I and just about everybody watching know that the number one play you're going to get right there is just inside zone, cut off zone. And you're still going to have the C-gap defender line up, head up on the tight end, and get cut out of C-gap. And it's like, I know for a fact that your coaches were telling you if the back's over there, you need to squeeze that down because you're going to get cut out if you don't. And I know the same thing with the three technique, right? If the back's offset to him, you want the tightest three technique you can possibly get. And because if you don't, he's going to get reached. And it just happens over and over again. And those are the things that you have to settle guys into, I think, just early in the game. Like, hey, don't forget. These are the alignments that we talked about from a game plan. These are where we got to be from a game plan standpoint, these are the backfield tests. These are what we're going to get. Like stay with the fundamentals and just the basic parts of the game plan early on. The, the players need to just be calm and just execute and not worry about, you know, all the things that, that come along with these games and, um, you know, all the stuff that goes on pregame and whatnot. Looking at critical area of the field, the red zone, having the ability to force a field goal, they're going to get in the red zone. I think both of these teams are going to get in the red zone. I think that, you know, you see a big difference in tight games like this being who who has to kick a field goal and who takes it all the way in the end zone. So looking at that and, and approaches to that, you know, you're sitting there making the calls. Once they start nearing that area, what kind of approach typically do you like in saying, hey, we got to keep them – out of the end zone we got to at least force a field goal maybe hopefully you know a miss here from from a long range you know when you look at when you break people down when they get down in the red zone i I know a lot of times in the low red when you start getting inside the 20 they're going to throw the ball in a lot of situations that they don't normally throw it in and it's this horizontal passing game so you know i think that just being sound against their horizontal passing game, being sound against their run game and keeping them out. I'm not a huge fan of starting to 
blitz to knock them out of field goal range unless we have to. So if you're in an end-of-game scenario or end-of-half scenario and you're really trying to do that, I think it's important that you have some pressure so you feel like, all right, if we can get a negative or two, we can make this field goal a lot tougher on them. You know, it's you, you want to approach it like they're going to use all four downs, though. Even if it's clear they're going to kick the field goal, I don't know that there's any clear decision on fourth down anymore in, in football. You know, I think that, that the – whatever the analytics or whatever that people use to make these decisions anymore. I, I can't predict. I mean, people are going for fourth and twos at their own 37. I mean, I, I, I can't predict anymore that somebody's going to punt, right? Unless it's and long and it's in their own territory. So I think you have to approach all those high red to low red uh, scenarios as if they got four downs. So if that, what I would think you would do is adjust your calls on third down they don't necessarily reflect a quote unquote get off down. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, you, it needs to, it needs to reflect maybe what you would do on second and medium. Right. And then obviously the, the team will have tendencies in and of itself as you scout them, but it's just so hard when you watch somebody to say, okay, this is, this is four down territory. Now, like uh, four down territory is pretty much anytime you cross your own 35 anymore in, in college and professional football. So, you know, having that ability to approach third down and third and mediums and third and, you know, shorter mediums like three and four, just to look, this is, this is, could be a rundown. This could be, we could get counter here and like, not have to throw it in the end zone here. So you know, those are the things I think that, you know, help you in those situations. And, you know, if they're going to use four downs or they're going to kick the field goal. And then you know, if you have to, if you're in a got to have it situation, you got to have some pressures dialed up to where you might be able to knock them back or, you know, create, create a takeaway, obviously, in the red zone would be highly beneficial. Now, when you look back to the game of the century, this thing came down to the wire, obviously. Uh, End-of-game situation becomes very important here. And, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about all these situations here. I, I'll make sure I link and be specific about those episodes in the show notes. But uh, looking at end of game the approach to end of game here knowing that it's going to come down to either a kick or somebody's got to score or stop a score for the win you know on the defensive side of the ball what things are you focused on in in a game like this yeah i mean you know when you think of end of game scenarios you really again you got to have a library of what you think you're going to see in all the possible situations i mean where is the ball you know what what is what is the score if they need touchdowns, if they need field goals, right? Obviously in the uh, game of the century, right? It ended up 42-39. So take and have your library and really have a good plan as to what you think is going to happen, right? Are they going to go for two if that's the situation, right? If they're down one, what's going to happen? They score a touchdown, they end up down one. I was in that situation when I was at Ohio State and we were up at Michigan and Michigan scores to make it 42-41. And they're at home, and they decide to go for two. It's the end of the game. I, I don't know if there was any time left. I can't remember if it was zero zero or just a few seconds left. I don't I don't recall what happened after that. But you know, they chose that, right? So I think that you need to be prepared for those situations. Like, are they going to go for two to win the game, right? Or are they just going to they going to kick it and play for overtime? Like, what is the mo of this team? What is the mo of you know the head coach, the play caller, that type of thing? Like, so the preparation of that, and then 
if it is a if it is a field goal, like what what is their last second field goal strategy been? Do they as soon as they cross the forty, are they, are they comfortable with the field goal? Or as soon as they cross the thirty five, they're comfortable with the field goal and they're just going to run the ball? Or you know, like we saw Michigan last week, Michigan was probably questionably, you know, I think a lot of people questioned they were still taking shots and trying to throw it in the end zone um, with very few very little time left down a point to Illinois. So, and that's their plan, and and obviously they built that plan based on the information that us as fans don't have and we're not at practice we don't know so uh, all good but i think some of us watching we're like wow is this really what they're going to do so you know be prepared for that like what is the what is the mo of this team as it gets to an end of game scenario and you have all these different scenarios like what is on the tape from the games where they've played close and i think it's so important to just have in your head because you know i don't know what illinois defensive staff was thinking or not but I probably, unless I knew that, would not have been thinking, okay, I need to be in calls to protect the sidelines still here and, and be in some cloud here because they're going to try to take some – throw some out cuts to the sideline and, you know, throw the ball in the end zone one time. I think try to throw like a seven cut. They shot – overshot it. But, like, if I didn't know that going in from a game plan, I probably would not have been calling plays for that. So, you know, and, and maybe they were – maybe Illinois was in the call that – Illinois was in the call they wanted to be in. I don't know. But – you think about those little scenarios and, and what's what's the MO of the guys you're playing. We'll wrap things up today. We said we discussed a little bit of hotline to victory, um, something we've both discussing a little bit over the course of the season as we've we've looked at that. Uh, again, I feel it's it's full of some great ideas that still uh, hold true today. I remember, and I did a podcast episode on this um, when. One of my jobs I w- learned as an assistant, this is early on in my career, the uh, stunt 4-3 defense George Perlis had put together uh, with the Pittsburgh yeah. Steelers and then brought it over to Michigan State. And we pretty much ran that thing uh, to a T. I would say that the part where we varied at the high school level was was the coverage. Our defensive coordinator uh, wasn't a big fan of, of uh, too high coverage at the time, not seeing spread but we were in a lot of one high, but pretty much everything else was the same. And one of the things we did, if you're familiar with this defense, a lot of times when you look at it, it looks like a 6-1. I mean, it is 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 definitely giving some of that simulated pressure look, you know, back at that time. And we play our will yeah. linebacker. A lot of times it was just the call was tilt. Uh, you know, he had the tilt tackle in there, and he would walk up to the, the uh, line of scrimmage. Now, he was not blitzing. He's just playing his position from there. So the one key for him uh, to to really be able to maintain his responsibilities and then uh, be able to to get to the ball was what we call the five yard fence rule. And the five yard fence rule, which is in Woody's book, uh, and you know I remember reading, I'm like, well, I wonder if this is where where that came from. Uh, was essentially this: you know, you're playing a guy up on the line of scrimmage, and his rule is. Ball goes away. He cannot pursue straight down the line. He cannot, you know, go obviously behind the line of scrimmage. That wouldn't be smart. But he had to use this five-yard fence rule, which he had an imaginary fence that was was five yards deep, you know, perpendicular line of scrimmage that he had to back up and go around, had to get to that five-yard depth before he could pursue and get get into any kind of, of run fit uh, away from the ball, obviously pursuing and getting to the ball. And what this does, though, I think it's 
it's brilliant in design is it causes that patience. This guy's still responsible for for boot, for reverse, for counter, for cutback. And if he's taking that five-yard technique, backing up, being patient, and he gets to that edge where now I could go, I got to the end of the fence, I can go, he will have been able to diagnose anything coming back all the time. So it was something we preached, five-yard fence rule. And anyway, that's one of the great defensive things I've picked up from the hotline to, to victory, at least remembered from the hotline of victory, something we did. Uh, a lot of great stuff in there. But for you, what are some of the things that really stand out in Woody's book? I think you just look at the level of details that go into coaching somebody. You know, and this is something I think we talked about maybe the first time we ever spoke, but the detail that go into that book and the details into little different scenarios and little different coaching points is so much greater depth than what you can actually tell the players. Like you can't give them seven paragraphs on how to zone block, right? That's just not what it's not going to be beneficial to them. They're not going to digest it. Like they don't love the stuff the way we love it. It's a different experience for them. So you have to be able to take all those details that Woody has on, on a specific topic. And you, you should have all those details in your head based on, on your own techniques and your own schemes and whatever you do. But then how do we take it from being, you know, a 1200 word essay on a zone step and make it two sentences that get exactly what we want. And, you know, obviously with the success we had, I know he was able to do that in, in coaching, but to have all those details and all that stuff in your head, detailed completely out, written out and, and to understand all that. But then you know, when it comes down to teaching it, right, we're able to condense that, that way, 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 way down. So the players can actually understand it's something that they can remember something they get. So I think that was great. I think, you know, I shared with you earlier, I thought I sent this to a bunch of my friends and stuff. It's when I was reading the book is like, you know, he makes the talks about quarterback reads and how they read the defense and one high and where the extra you know, safeties are and extra linebackers are. And he says now in the NFL game that the quarterback actually reads the defense and he puts in all caps after the snap. And it's like, you know, that's coming from however many years ago. And, and now obviously that's a, that's a staple in, in probably in junior high football. And right? I mean, people are probably spinning down from too high to one high post snapping, you know, in seventh grade football. So I think that just, it shows you, you know, where the game goes and, and how far it comes and how far it evolves. And I think that, you know, obviously in 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, it's going to look a lot different. So I think, uh, you know, those things are interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I hope, uh, hope someday that, uh, you know, somebody's staring at your book, Keith, and saying, you know, we, we got to look at this guy. <laughs> I don't know what the hell this guy was thinking about when he wrote this, but yeah, no, it's great. I, I love that book. I think if anybody can get their hands on hotline, the victory and just see the details that it takes to be a great coach. And some of the stuff that's in there is probably still relevant and some of it's probably not, but it's the, really the thought that goes into how he formulated his thoughts and how he looked at football and how he looked at coaching the game, I think is uh, priceless. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's what it does. And, you know, you take all that in the context of, why was he writing it at the time? What were, what were they doing? What was football like at the time? Um, and then, you know, set that aside. Uh, some of the things that, well, this doesn't work today. But as you said, it's, it's a, a framework for understanding somebody's thought process, uh, the details that they put into coaching this game, and 
uh, definitely a lot to be learned. I know we like to to get our information now in sound bites and short video clips, but you know, taking the time and spending the time with with uh, a book like that or any of the the great books that have been written on this game, I think a lot of them are historical now because you know I, I can think back to the the six books I wrote were for the multimedia. Uh, type of of uh, delivery so yeah it was video heavy um, but the thought process I think thought processes I believe are something that you know we we really need to continue to work on as coaches I think that's what makes a difference for you in this profession in your career is that uh, regardless of what's going on regardless of you know the the software you have to to, to put into the to the the system your operating system is your thought processes your understanding of the game and fitting those other things in really becomes easy and those are the easy things to get now we could get them all over the place we're coming up on clinic season here we'll have our first uh virtual clinic with which has been a great one always with uh the illinois high school football coaches and they have uh just a preview of that they have the Illinois staff, the Northwestern staff, the Northern Illinois staff, and then they have uh, tracks for uh, spread offense, wing T option, uh, defensive track, special teams track, and even an eight-man football track. So I will release that one actually on uh, Cyber Monday. You'll be able to see that one as well as Lawrence First and Goal. So some good clinic coming up out there, a place to learn football, but Dan, uh, this is this has been a, a great series. It's certainly great to talk ball with you, learn things from a different perspective, and uh, I think you know it's it's exciting what we've been able to discuss here and highlight. And if if you're just coming back to the podcast because you've been busy with the season, uh, be sure to check out the link in the show notes to the playlist. Uh, there are a lot of great topics covered here, always built around the framework of the game, but really it applies to. Uh, any any time of the season yeah um you know key it's been awesome it's been a great season of uh got my fix of football coaching in the spring league and spending all this time in the fall watching games and got my fix talking to you and hopefully uh somebody else got something out of it so happy thanksgiving to everybody and you know um, really excited to, to check out this weekend rivalry games and i know you talked about the game of the century uh and then you said you got to be there. And I tell people that was the greatest day as, as a fan I've ever been a part of because I got to see the greatest high school game I ever saw. That was Steubenville versus Dover at Canton Fawcett Stadium. And then I got to go to my grandfather's house and not long before he passed away, to be honest. I mean, I shared a lot of sport, sporting events with and um, him and my younger brother. And we watched the game of the century, Ohio State, Michigan. And, uh, you know, those are the moments as a fan you think of and, and you really enjoy. And I can remember that, you know, I don't really – see the game as a fan's perspective anymore but I can remember that and it was um it was a great day a special day so you know enjoy the game and, and uh, you know, uh enjoy the moments you get to share that stuff with family especially you know, over Thanksgiving